following is from the July 3rd, 2014 um, edition of the Laconia Daily Sun from Laconia, New Hampshire. And the headline reads this. Pastor who suffered devastating loss of four daughters in fire never lost his faith. Gilmanton. A memorial service will be held Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Living Word Assembly of God Church on Old Stage Road for Millie Stevens, the mother of 17 children who died on June 4th of this year in Jacksonville, Florida and was lovingly known as Shoebox Millie by her family and friends. Her husband, Pastor Sherm Stevens, who founded and helped build the church building where the memorial service will be held, he says that she got the shoebox tag because when she was born, she only weighed two pounds, would be placed in a shoebox by her parents and kept warm in the end of the bed near an open door of a wood stove. Stephen says that the service will feature remembrances of his wife by those who knew her from the time when he and she first arrived in town in the early 1960s and established the Evangelical Baptist Fellowship, a popular church which drew members from many nearby communities, including Laconia, and at one time had 300 showing up for Sunday school. He says, I remember digging the cellar hole and working when the foundation was poured said Stevens, who would later go on to start churches in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and Athens, Georgia. He said that he first met Millie in South Paris, Maine, where they both grew up, and that he'd gone through the school lunch line in high school and was walking with his tray looking for a place to sit when she said, you can sit with me. It was the start of a relationship which went on for over 66 years, including more than 63 years of married life. And it saw them involved in ministries in such remote places as Guyana and Ecuador and South America, as well as eight missionary visits to Russia in the 1990s, to churches founded by one of their sons who was involved in the underground church movement prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Sherman Milley had 46 grandchildren and 17 great-grandchildren. Much of what they accomplished together came after the devastating loss of four of their daughters, three of whom were teenagers, and one who was a little over a year old in an explosion and fire at their farmhouse home in Gilmanton on Sunday, June 29, 1969. Stevens described what happened that night in a widely circulated Christian testimony entitled, When There's No Hope, which has been translated into at least a dozen languages. Listen to what he says. It was about 4 a.m. We were jolted from sleep by an explosion that rocked the foundation of our farmhouse. As we opened our bedroom door, we were faced with a roaring inferno. It was impossible to reach little Hope, who was just outside our bedroom door. Millie snatched Grace from the crib in our room and went up the old stairs that led to the attic. We passed through a small opening over the fire and found our way to the back stairs. The door at the foot of the stairs opened toward us and was locked from the other side. We were hopelessly trapped. Kevin, our 16-year-old son, had already led Peter, Carl, Andy, Tim, Faith, and Jesse outside the burning building. Above the roar of the fire, he somehow heard our cry. Leaving Peter in charge of those on the lawn, he made his fourth trip into the raging inferno, unlocked the door, and led us to safety. Immediately, we began to count the children. Mike, the oldest, was away for the night. That left 12 at home, but only eight were accounted for. 
Vicky, Bonnie, Debbie, and Hope were still inside the house. A ladder from the barn was used to try to enter the girl's window on the second floor. The heat and smoke drove us back again and again. Soon the fire department arrived and began rescue operations. However, the great intensity of the fire made it impossible to save the lives of our girls. It is my honest prayer that you will never stand beside a burning building with the realization that members of your family have left this life for the life hereafter. It is my hope that you will never have to watch as everything you own goes up in flames. Believe me, it is the most hopeless feeling that you can ever experience. The entire family, wearing clothes donated by their neighbors, were at church several hours after the fire. Pastor Stevens told the assembled congregation that despite the loss, his faith was unshaken. He said, I am as sure that God is still God as I have ever been. If I didn't believe that, I would nail the door of this church shut and never enter it again. He said that four of our girls went home to heaven that Sunday morning and that it was the love of Christ and the grace of God that held his family together and flooded their hearts with peace, enabling them to withstand the trial brought on by the deaths of the four girls. Stephen says that he is intensely proud of his children and their, their careers in law enforcement, nursing, and the ministry which they've created for themselves, and that one of his great joys is family reunions, at which he gets to see them and their children and grandchildren, and is looking forward to being reunited with former members of his congregation at Sunday's memorial service, where those who knew his wife will get to express in their own words what she meant to them. Sherm himself died in 2019. I knew Sherman Millie. Um, they were my grandparents' closest friends, my mom's parents. Sherman and I officiated my grandfather's funeral together, actually. Um, in fact, after their time together in Gilmanton, my grandfather would go on to start, start another church that still exists because of the impact that Sherman Stevens had on his life. My parents both attended that Evangelical Baptist Fellowship in high school, and as a point of interest, maybe a side note, while the Assemblies of God a Church that had taken over the building, that eventually closed its doors after sometime in the last 10 years. A couple of years ago, the building was purchased by Harvest Bible Church, where Nate Pickowitz is the pastor. And my father and my stepmother are members there. I had the opportunity to preach there this past summer. But the saddest part of that story for me is the fact that Vicki one of the daughters who had died in the fire was my mother's best friend. Her death deeply affected my mom. She talks about it still at times. It suffice it to say that her reaction was different from that of Sherman Millie's reaction. So let me just interject this question right here. This is a question the disciples once asked Jesus. But it's a question that in one form or another, anyone could ask. The circumstances might be different, but anybody could ask this question. Rabbi, who sinned that this, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10, or really verse 5 to 10 this morning. But again, I want to read the whole chapter. 
Keep that question in mind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he, to put it in my own words, suffered? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray that you'd feed us from your word today that Christ Jesus would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Too often, Christians become bitter toward God. They become depressed or weak in their faith when they face trials. Sometimes they wonder why why they've been the ones that have been struck with with a debilitating disease or a terminal illness. Others wonder where God was when their, when their business collapsed or when they got laid off. Still others wonder how God could allow their marriage to fall apart. These kinds of trials are actually not limited to, to modern Christians. Suffering in one form or another is a common human experience in a fallen world. There are many angles with which we could look at suffering. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's God's judgment on his enemies. The Psalms are, even the one that we just sang, are filled with calls for this. Sometimes suffering is discipline directed at God's own people. In fact, 1 Corinthians instructs the church to not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Verse uh, chapter 11 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And yet, and yet James tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we know, we know because Jesus answered the disciples' question that I asked a minute ago, he answered them, we we know that the ultimate purpose for suffering is, as Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
that the works of God might be displayed in him. God truly does work all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, the second half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 explains that the the trials and the sufferings that we face, they're not accidental. They're not out of God's control. Instead, God actually has a purpose for them. He has good reasons that, that not only might individual Christians suffer, but even entire churches might experience, at least at times, severe trials of one form or another. According to these verses, an effective witness results when the church becomes an example of faithfulness in the midst of suffering by imitating, it even says, imitating their godly leaders and and ultimately by imitating Christ. And so Paul starts here by addressing imitation and discipleship, the connection of, of imitation and discipleship. If you pick it up in the middle of verse 5, just read 5 and 6 again. So the middle of verse 5, it says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, not every Bible translation does this. I use the ESV, the English Standard Version. Some others don't use this. But um, in Paul's original writing, where verse 6 begins, is the word that is translated as and. And you became imitators of us. And that is important because these verses are a continuation. Verse 6 is a, is a continuation of the thankfulness that Paul has been expressing all along here in this chapter. That's why I've, I've continued each week as we've gone through these first few verses to, to read the entire chapter together. It's all Paul expressing his thankfulness. In fact, the, the Thessalonians, uh, their imitation of Paul and the others is directly connected to God's choosing of them in verse 4. That means the fact that these people were were imitating the Apostle Paul as he imitated Christ, that was further proof that they were genuinely among the chosen people, that they were genuinely elect, that they were genuinely saved, further proof of their salvation. See, when Paul says in verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He's not really trying to, trying to emphasize his own character and his own faithfulness or their own faithfulness, although that's not an insignificant point. Instead, he's, he's connecting them to Christ himself. He is assuring them that they are, they are faithful disciples, and he knows it, Silvanus and Timothy know it, everyone knows it. They are faithful disciples. So we could put this in our own words like this. And we also give thanks to God for your election because as a result of the apostolic ministry in Thessalonica, you saints became imitators of us and most importantly of the Lord himself. I know you are believers because you are imitating Christ. That's ultimately what he is saying. These saints, the saints at Thessalonica, they were changed They imitated the pattern of faithful living that they had seen displayed by by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy as they imitated Christ. That's what so much of discipleship is. 
It starts with the proclaimed word of God, right? Our gospel came to you not only in word. That means our gospel came to you in word. And then the Holy Spirit uses God's word to change the hearts and minds of believers, to transform them. Not only in, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then it moves to imitation. Word, the work of the Spirit, conform us to the image of Christ. The Word of God, the work of the Spirit, the model of faithful leaders conforms us to the image of Christ. Discipleship, being a disciple, is learned by imitating the example of those ahead of us. Um, Paul does not hesitate to tell Christians that he is Christians that he is discipling to be imitators of me because in true humility he follows that with as I am of Christ. That's the same humility that he's showing right here in verse 6. Look at this again. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And of the Lord. This, this uh, connection between imitation and discipleship is, is purposeful here. Many times in his, in his letters, in his epistles, Paul will call us, he'll call his readers to look to him or even to others. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he sell, tells the church at Corinth this. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And then he says this. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved uh, and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Be imitators of me. Watch Timothy as he's acting like me as well. Right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he tells the church at Philippi, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Remember, the, the task of disciple-making, making disciples, is the task of the church. In Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this idea of imitation in discipleship or disciple-making, it plays an important role in the building of Christ's church. But we often, especially here, in our society, in the American, modern American society, we, we often run into a problem. Our society loves to claim to promote individualism, right? Which sounds something like this, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. We think that conformity is fake or phony and a denial of who you really are. Actually, it's the opposite. Think about that for a moment. Do you know why you could pick out um, a hippie in the 60s? Do you know why you could pick one out in a crowd? Do you know why you could pick out a, a punk rocker in the 1970s in a crowd? 
or a goth kid in the early 2000s just by looking at them? Because they're all conformed to a certain image. They all look the same. (laughs) Of course, they would say the same about people like me. They've conformed to what they are told to conform to. The goth kids of the early 2000s all shopped at the same stores. Brilliant marketing. Hot topic. Brilliant marketing. They all look the same. They've been told, they've been discipled, we could even put it that way, to look a certain way, to have certain attitudes, to like certain music, on and on, right? This is exactly what is going on with the the sexual confusion that we are seeing today. The spirit of the age says, be true to yourself. Everybody's doing it. See, we we will conform to something. We will conform to something. And Paul is commending the saints at Thessalonica for conforming to the image of Christ that they have seen in Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He's pleased. He's thankful even. Thankful to God that they are living lives that give evidence of the genuineness of their salvation. They are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And then Paul tells us precisely how they became imitators. Again, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Christians of Thessalonica received the, the apostolic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same faithful manner or under the same circumstances as so many of the saints before them had. That is, they maintained their joy in the midst of trials, especially, in their case, persecution. And the primary model of that, the primary model of maintaining joy in the face of persecution or trials of various kinds is Jesus Christ himself. The preacher of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. This is the attitude of the apostles as well. In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 42, we read this and. When they had called in the apostles, specifically here it's um, Peter and John, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And when they had left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They took their beating. They faced their trials. They faced their suffering and rejoiced with joy. Consider that Paul and Silas, even the authors of this letter, they themselves were singing in prison in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 tells us the crowd joined in attacking them. 
And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymn to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. If you'd been beaten with rods, thrown in jail, with your feet hooked to the stocks in the inner prison, would you be singing? And it's, it's important to note, that happened just before they got to Thessalonica. They were in Philippi just before they were in Thessalonica. See, we need to remember, one writer said this, we will walk no other path than that which Jesus and the apostles had trod before us. That is one of joyful faith in the midst of affliction. Joyful faith in the midst of affliction. If we continue here, um, let me read 6, 7, and 8 all together. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul is emphasizing here that their joy in the midst of, of affliction is yet another proof that their faith was real. So not only did they receive the word, not only did they believe the gospel, they actually did so in the face of much affliction. Acts chapter 17, we, we looked at that passage before uh, several weeks ago when we first started um, this study. Acts 17 tells us that they had seen their church leaders arrested. In fact, the, the Jewish leadership in uh, Thessalonica, they did not believe that in Jesus Christ and they chased Paul and his companions out of town and pursued them all the way to Berea. The threats of violent, violence and imprisonment were ever present for these believers. You may remember that Paul himself had suffered repeatedly in his own service to Christ. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives that famous sort of testimony when he, when he lays out his suffering and he says, um, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me and of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? But if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. By imitating Paul, who suffered all of those things 
throughout his ministry. By imitating Paul and, and Silvanus and Timothy, they were ultimately imitating Christ. Peter tells us that this is the same, the same call for us as Jesus' disciples. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. But this is about more than just physical circumstances, right? All of this is about more than just physical circumstances. We are called as his disciples to adopt Christ's attitude as well. See, Peter continues in the very next verse there in 1 Peter 2. He says, we, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is his father. But the word Paul uses here is not the word persecution but rather it's translated as affliction. And in this case, um, that word is, it, it refers to a severe pressure applied to an object. Great pressure. That's what this word affliction means here. Great pressure. I know that some of you have received the faith in the face of much pressure. Pressure not to. Pressure not to follow Christ. For some, it's pressure from an unbelieving spouse. Or maybe from some other family member or, or maybe friends. They mock. They think you've joined a cult. This week, um, I went to Holmes County. I met up with some other men from, we're in the Fire Fellowship, so the Fellowship of Independent Reformed evangelicals. So some other men from these uh, other churches in our group. And with them, uh, we met with a pastor and some men from a church in eastern Ohio who would like to join up with our fellowship of churches. They had some questions, some things they wanted to talk through, and so we went and met together. Um, and as we visited, we were in Holmes County, I heard the story of a young uh, newlywed and, in fact, newly expecting couple. They're about 20 years old and Amish. They've been attending a fire fellowship church in Holmes County. In fact, the only fire fellowship church in Holmes County. Do you think that this young couple, knowing what you know about communities like the Amish, do you think this young couple is facing affliction? Do you think they're facing great pressure not to accept the gospel? The church that we were meeting with is actually, um, we were meeting with a pastor and a couple of other men from the church, the Pentecostal church. And that pastor has pastored the same church for over 20 years. And he has in the past few years led them in accepting the sufficiency of scripture over their own experiences. But as you can imagine, that has been in much affliction. G.K. Beale writes, as we become more conformed to the image of Christ, we are to live in such a way that others would be influenced by our lives and so become conformed also to Christ's image. 
Now just imagine for a moment, what is God doing then in that one couple in Holmes County, Ohio? Many of you have been to Holmes County. You know what it's like there. What is God doing in that one couple? What will it be like in 50 years? Maybe. And we could pray. As we become more conformed to the image of Christ, we're to live in such a way that others would be influenced by our lives and so become conformed also to Christ's image. Along those same lines, those who have believed in Jesus are called to replace those, those sinful and worldly patterns in their lives by imitating the biblical patterns that you see lived out in the church around you. This is what the Thessalonians were doing. They became a model to others. They became a mold in which new believers were, were poured and, and, and new little, little Thessalonian churches were formed. Notice that verse 7 says, an example. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It doesn't say examples, plural. This is the witness of the entire church together as a whole. As a whole, the Thessalonian church was faithful in their joyful belief. Not only in attitude, they were joyfully sounding forth the gospel, it says. Their witness was being made known throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Those are the two regions that make up all of what we think of today as Greece. They were sounding forth the gospel. That's related to the word, the, the Greek word behind that is related to the word that we get our word echo from. So the English theologian John Stott, he said this. He would say that the good news announced by this church was like a loud, resounding noise which seemed to reverberate throughout the hills and valleys of Greece. The gospel was sounding forth, echoing throughout Greece. The word of the gospel sounded forth everywhere, it says, all over the place, even in the face of much affliction. I don't, I don't pray that we would face affliction. <laughs> in fact, I pray that we wouldn't. But I do pray that the gospel would sound forth from this high point of Ohio, down over the mountains and the valleys, that the word of Christ would joyfully echo all over the place from here. I pray that for us. The second part of my prayer for us is that we would, we would have a godly reputation of joyful obedience to the Great Commission. Joyful, godly reputation. Look, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of rep, uh, reception we had among you and how you turned from God to idol, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The, the Thessalonians' godly reputation of joyful faithfulness leading to evangelism was not only an example to, to others, but it also resulted actually in, in relieving uh, significantly the burden Paul would have had in, in evangelizing this region. I don't even need to say anything, he says. They have already heard the gospel from you. In fact, Paul, Paul did not have to say, have you heard of the Thessalonian church? Have you heard of the faith 
of the Thessalonians. Oh, we've heard of them. Everyone had. Everyone has heard of them, he says. That means that that people were hearing about the genuine conversion of the saints at Thessalonica. And and look again at this conversion. Look again at this change that they underwent. Let let me read 9 and 10 again. For they themselves, that is everybody that he's running into in Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a, there's a threefold description of repentance here. Um, or, or the Christian life, really. It's more than just repentance, although all of the Christian life is all of repentance. First, they didn't simply, they didn't simply add Jesus to their, to their list of gods, right? The gospel message is not try Jesus. <laughs> just leave it at that. They, they didn't just, these were literal pagans with the Greek pantheon of gods, right? Combined with the Roman pantheon of gods. They didn't just add Jesus to that list. They turned from idols. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Idols can be nearly anything. Even good things that we elevate to the status that only, only the Lord deserves. Things that are not Him that we, that we yet set our hearts on. Things that we give our affections to. This, this genuinely can be anything. But turning away from idols is only, it's only half of what repentance looks like. The other half, and this is the second description of, of the Christian life, or the second description of repentance, is to serve God. Look at, look at Paul's emphasis here. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, repentance isn't just simply stop what you're doing. Stop doing, stop doing that. Right? Stop fornicating. Stop doing this sin or that. Stop lying. Stop stealing. That's not just what repentance is. It actually... We might say it like this repentance is stop doing what you're doing, turn around, and go in the opposite direction. We might say it this way. Stop serving yourself and start serving God. Stop pursuing your own appetites and start pursuing the Lord. And in the meantime, as you are doing that, as you are stop pursuing idols, your own appetites, and starting to pursue God, serving Him. In the meantime, wait. Wait for Christ's deliverance from the wrath to come. In fact, we, we actually could summarize these three um, characteristics of, uh, of what the Christian life looks like or what repentance specifically looks like. We could summarize those with those, those three words that we looked at last week or the week before. Faith, love, and hope. This is the message that Paul was hearing that the Thessalonians were preaching. A message of faith, love, and hope. 
Formerly, they had put their faith in worthless idols, but now they were trusting in the living and true God whom they have put their hope and whom, in whom they have put their, uh, their trust and their love. They have placed their hope on the return of the Messiah, on, on the risen Christ who will come and, and rescue us from the wrath to come. The key, the key to the faith of the Thessalonian church who gained accolades for their gospel spreading, for their God's serving, for their Christ-awaiting reputation. The key, I believe, is found in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, and it's this simple phrase. Let me read it again. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. If we have believed in the good news of Jesus as the message of salvation for the world, then it must sound forth from here. It should echo from, here we are in the mountains of Ohio, It should echo from here. If our Heavenly Father is the living and true God, then we must turn from those dead, false gods that we keep in our hearts, that we hold fast to. We must turn from them in order to serve Him. And if Jesus is returning soon to to bring salvation, to, to bring us to Himself, And we must wait with eager expectation for his coming and prepare to meet in the flesh, face to face with the Son of God. We must prepare to see him face to face. It is fitting that we come now to the Lord's Supper. Because when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are doing what? We are proclaiming his death until he returns. We are holding fast to the word that we have received, the word of truth in the scriptures. We are holding fast to Christ. Is our faith going forth? Is it resounding? Is the gospel resounding from us? We are holding fast And we are waiting. We are waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would We know that the scriptures say that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We hold to that promise, Lord. We pray that you would complete the work. We know that that means that it will be fully completed when we are in glory. And so we can pray with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord. But we also know that to live is Christ. And so I pray that the gospel would resound, would sound forth 
from here, not just from the pulpit, but from each of us as we share a reason for the hope that is within us, as we, as we share the gospel, that it would sound forth, that it would echo throughout this whole region, knowing that it is your good news that we've been called to preach, to proclaim. And so, Father, we wait for Christ's return, the one who has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We proclaim his death until he comes. We are thankful for his work on the cross, his body crucified for our sin, his blood spilt for us to be a, to be a new covenant that all who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so Lord, we come and we take, we eat, we drink, and we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.